of Isaiah, chapter 53. Your Bible or Bible app, Isaiah 53. As a reminder, you have these Easter invitations in your bulletins as well. Please use these to invite friends, family, neighbors, co-workers to come right here and hear the good news of our risen Savior. Isaiah 53, Isaiah writing about 700 years before Jesus lived, and yet providing our lens for understanding and appreciating the Lord Jesus Christ as we approach Good Friday and Easter. Emily's going to read our passage in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. I imagine you are aware by now of the slap, which occurred at last week's Academy Awards when actor Will Smith slapped comedian Chris Rock. Well, the slap has now displaced the envelope as the most infamous moment in Academy Award history. The envelope was in 2017, when Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were handed the wrong envelope for the Best Picture Award. They read the envelope saying that La La Land had won Best Picture. And so La La Land's producers came on stage and gave an acceptance speech for about two minutes when it was announced correctly that Moonlight had actually won Best Picture. That was the envelope. Today, God hands us an envelope through the prophet Isaiah. An envelope called the servant. Now, we know this servant is Jesus Christ, but, but correctly reading this envelope requires believing more than that. Isaiah cries out in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? We should ask then, what do I believe about this servant, Jesus? Am I reading this envelope correctly? You might answer, I believe that he was a good teacher, a fine religious leader, maybe, maybe a prophet of some kind, but nothing more. Or you might say, I have believed in him as Savior, but, but are you still reading this envelope as you could and should? Are you still reading this particular envelope rightly? wholeheartedly. Over time, don't you find our vision of Jesus gets cloudy? In particular, 
seems to me suffering and trials and difficulties begin to distort our view of who he is. We can think, I, I still believe in him, but, but not like I once did. I was kind of naive then. You ever have that thought? I still believe in him, but not, not like I once did. Not that he really cares for me personally. I mean, God is powerful or God is loving, but I, I, don't, I don't believe he's both anymore. Is that you? It's really a question here posed by the prophet Isaiah of whose perspective are you using? A human perspective on this servant or a divine perspective on this servant? That's the, that's the issue here Isaiah poses to us. Whose perspective, whose, whose vantage point are you using to view this servant, Jesus Christ? A human one or a divine one? Let's consider both. First, the human perspective. First, the human perspective of this servant. Verse 2. For he... The servant, he grew up before him like a young plant, a, a tender shoot, a new vulnerable plant. Yes, from the human family tree, but vulnerable, you might say, born as a baby. And like a root, it says, out of dry ground, out of parched land. Not good soil for a young plant to grow in. Not an auspicious beginning, not a promising start. We know he was born in the most humble of circumstances, laid in a manger, an animal's feeding trough as a newborn, born into a poor family. They only had enough money for the offering of the poor, a couple small birds to God. Grew up in a backwater town with a bad reputation called Nazareth. When one guy met Jesus, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? How'd you like to hear that when your hometown is mentioned? Anything good come out of Santee, or Lemon Grove, or Chula Vista? The implication is, certainly not you. Nothing auspicious, nothing promising in his beginnings. And when he grew up, there was nothing impressive in his appearance. Verse 2 continues, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Nothing remarkable to look at. Nothing dignified that you could discern with the human eye. He didn't have Tom Brady's chiseled chin and natural good looks. I'm not sure how we got the depictions of Jesus. Handsome, long flowing blonde hair, looking like a, a model for a shampoo commercial. He didn't look like that. He was ordinary. We want our leaders to command our allegiance by how they appear. That was not Jesus. He was unimpressive, unattractive, unremarkable to look at from a human perspective. Do you really want to bank your eternal soul on a guy like that? Really? And then the human perspective, it gets worse. It goes from explanation to result, you might say, in verse 3. He was 
despised, verse 3. Despised and rejected by men. Hated and shunned. A man of sorrows. Literally, a man of pains. A man of pains. Acquainted with grief. One who knows about grief personally, by experience. As one from whom men hide their faces like you would look away, turn your face from a leper. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The idea is we, we appraised him, we accounted him as, as nothing. It's kind of like if you would buy or sell a home and you would have an appraiser come in to give an objective evaluation of your home. So when we evaluate Jesus, when we appraise Jesus, we esteem him as nothing. Are you thinking that right now? When you appraise Jesus, he comes up short. My appraisal, you might think, for how he's treated me, he comes up short now. In fact, he was despised and rejected all the way to being crucified. Executed as a criminal, dying a most shameful, despicable, embarrassing death. Why? I think as you read the gospel accounts, it's mainly for his teaching. He railed against the hypocrisy of the religious elite, and then he claimed in his teaching the unique prerogatives of God himself, forgiving sins as only God can, claiming to be the true temple, the true meeting place between God and man. And so they rejected him and despised him and killed him. Now, maybe we don't find those aspects of Jesus' claims for himself as offensive, but maybe other things he taught, we might. Think of the big three, money, sex, and power. Of money, Jesus said, you cannot serve. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot claim God as your God while money rules your life. If money gets you anxious, God is not your peace. So give your money away, have treasure in heaven. We might despise him for that. On sex, God, Jesus said, sex is God's good gift between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. That's not popular. If you lust after someone who's not your spouse, you're guilty, turn away from that. He would say, get rid of your porn habit. Don't flirt with that person at work. Don't fantasize about your neighbor classmate. We might despise him for that. On power, Jesus said, be a servant. Use your platform to do good to other people. You want to be great? Serve, he said. Who likes that message? We're, we're Americans. We consume. We're consumers. We want to serve. There are good reasons to answer Isaiah's question in verse 1 with, I don't believe him if we use a merely human perspective. If we use a merely human vantage point. So friends, are you reading this envelope correctly? Maybe 
your vision of him has gotten a bit cloudy, like I mentioned. Maybe suffering, maybe trials, maybe difficulties that I'm not trying to minimize, but you don't believe in him like you once did. You say, back then I was naive. He's not all that for me anymore. His compassion, his care, his love seem distant at best. Isaiah is explicit about this human perspective in these three verses, but he implies another perspective. He implies a divine perspective. Second, the divine perspective. Look at verse 1 again. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's a revealed, an unveiled message about this servant. Revealed by God, a, a divine perspective, you might say. Isaiah is claiming that the way to read this envelope rightly is only with the corrective lenses of divine revelation. Notice, it's to whom has the, has the arm of the Lord been revealed. The arm of God is a metaphor for his power. In the previous chapter, Isaiah writes that God bears his arm. God has rolled up his sleeves in his power to bring worldwide salvation. Now, he says, the arm of the Lord, to whom has the arm of the Lord, the power of God, been revealed, next words, for he. For he, the, the servant. Do you see the implication? The arm of the Lord, he. He's saying the arm himself has now come. The arm himself in the person of this servant has come. The power of God incarnate has now come on the scene in this servant as a baby. He grew up before him. The arm himself grew up before him. That's not all this tender shoot language, this root out of dry ground language in verse 2. That's been revealed back in chapter 11 of Isaiah. Chapter 11, verse 1 reads, quote, There shall come forth a shoot, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, the kingly line of David, and a branch from his roots, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's royal language, kingly language, now being echoed in Isaiah 53. This young shoot, this root out of dry ground. In other words, this servant, this unimpressive, unattractive, unremarkable individual is the king, the Messiah. The one who in Isaiah 11 transforms all of life. You can read about it later, but there in Isaiah 11, he brings judgment for the poor, equity for the meek, and transforms the entire world. The wolf lying down with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the goat, and the nursing child playing over the den of the cobra. For, he says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
That's what this root out of dry ground, this shoot, accomplishes in Isaiah 11. So there's a divine perspective here, but why is he still a man of sorrows in verse 3? He's the arm of God himself on the scene. The king who makes all things new on the scene, but a man of sorrows? Acquainted with grief? What gives? Well, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's a vital part of our true belief, our true perspective, our divine perspective on this serving. We must understand that the arm himself, the king, is a man of sorrows that we might rightly believe and follow him. John Stott once wrote, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Have you thought that? In the real world of pain, how can you worship a God who is immune to pain? You and I live in a real world of pain, great pain, unimaginable pain. And you experience real pain in your life personally. If you haven't yet, you will. But if you are a Christian, you worship a God who has experienced that pain personally. He came as a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He can relate to your pain. He understands your grief. He knows it by experience. I was at a little pastor's event with Joshua this past week. We kicked it off. The guy did a little brief talk about applying the gospel, the good news. And then we were supposed to talk at our table about some gospel application that we appreciated. And I, I shared how I wanted to better love and care for my wife as her father who lives with us is dying. And the guy we were talking with said, my father died last year and we just moved my mother into my brother's house to care for her. And in an instant I thought, he understands. He's experienced very similar things. He could relate Personally, that's Jesus, the man of sorrows. He can relate to what you're going through. Please don't tell yourself otherwise, friends. When you think no one else understands what I'm going through, he does. He does. He really does. And the result is, the, the upshot is, the application is a pathway in which to follow him. A pathway through suffering in which to follow the man of sorrows. A pathway having both a purpose and a goal. The Apostle Peter wrote to persecuted Christians saying in 1 Peter 2, to this you've been called 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now he's talking about unjust suffering, he's talking about persecution, but you can apply those words to any form of suffering as you follow Jesus on the pathway of discipleship. He says, to this you were called because the man of sorrows left you an example for you to follow in his, in his steps, the same steps, an example, follow in his steps. A number of years ago, this idea of following in Jesus' steps, it took on new life with the popularization of WWJD, if you recall that. What would Jesus do? And so we were wearing bracelets and various things saying, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And in the circles I was in at the time, some pastors took great exception to that because Jesus is much more than an example. And that's true. And those are the next verses in Isaiah, which I kindly delegated to Dan Arthur. <laughs> that's not these verses. Jesus is much more than an example, but never less than an example. He's much more than an example but not less. He left us an example, Peter says, that you might follow in his steps. Not reviling, he says, not threatening, he says, but entrusting himself to God. That's the pathway in which we follow the man of sorrows who entered this real world of pain for us. The visual image I had was, was of a jungle because trials and difficulties, they seem so confusing and perplexing. It's almost like you're entangled in, in vines and jungle undergrowth. But the man of sorrows bushwhacked a trail through the jungle. He took a machete and blazed a pathway, cutting through all that confusion. And now he says, follow me in these steps entrusting yourself to God. That's the purpose. As you follow in his steps, you are identifying yourself with him. You are, as it were, putting on his jersey with man of sorrows on the back and trusting yourself to God. Your suffering might feel like it has no purpose. It might feel like it has no meaning, but that's not true. At a minimum, at a minimum, we can say, as we follow him on that pathway, we are identifying with the man of sorrows and trusting ourselves to him. I had the privilege of visiting the week before last with Tim and Debbie Sperry. As you are aware, Debbie has stage four cancer. It's in his, her, it's in her brain's lungs, and lymph system. Rounds of chemo continue, and they are very challenging, and yet she keeps putting her feet in Jesus' steps, following the man of sorrows on this pathway. 
And what I find always remarkable when I talk with her is her evident faith, her evident faith and even consistent joy in Jesus. I, I tell her, Debbie, you are, you are preaching a loud sermon about trusting our trustworthy God. She is following the man of sorrows, identifying with him, putting on his jersey as she entrusts herself to God. And many of you doing the same. Jeff, Matthew, Becca. Where, friends, are you needing to do that right now? The arm himself, the king who transforms everything, has come as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, blazing a pathway, setting an example. Where, friends, is that pathway laid out for you right now? Some difficulty, some challenge. Is this wherever life is hard for you right now? Listen, there's a pathway and it has a purpose. It has a purpose and has a goal. Peter goes on to write, 1 Peter 4, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory, when his glory is revealed. In other words, the pathway takes you somewhere. The pathway leads you somewhere. It leads to life. It leads to victory. It leads to glory. It leads to seeing him face to face because the man of sorrows has also borne the sorrows of your sin. The one acquainted with grief has borne the guilt of our sin. He was rejected and crucified to be forsaken as our substitute. And in doing so, friends, he punched your ticket to glory if you will believe. Don't forget. Don't forget the one that you're following. The arm himself. The power of God incarnate. The root out of dry ground. The kingly one who makes all things new. The wolf lying down with the lamb. The leopard with the goat. The child playing with the cobra. The earth full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, all things made new by him, including you, including you. That's where the pathway is taking. Do you see how important it is to rightly read this envelope named Jesus? From a mere human perspective, an unimpressive individual, rejected and despised. But with the corrective lens of divine revelation, from a divine perspective, what is revealed to us, oh, is so much more. The arm of the Lord himself has come in this circle. The King, the Messiah, who makes all things new. The man of sorrows for me and you. 
perhaps, friends, you might meditate on 1 Peter chapter 2 in those verses I mentioned to see his example and remember this purpose that you are identifying with the man of sorrows as you follow him, as you entrust yourself to God. Or perhaps, perhaps you merely meditate on Isaiah 53, 3 to see that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, to remember that he understands your sorrows and cares about you. Or perhaps you look to the end of the story, how this man of sorrows returns and makes all things new. Who has believed our message, Isaiah asked? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, has blazed for us this pathway through suffering, leading to glory with him. Let's pray, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And I don't know, again, I don't know where life is hard for you right now. But maybe as is so easy, it seems to have happened, your view of Jesus has gotten cloudy or even distorted. Or to be honest, you've doubted his care and love. You could even in the silence of your heart right now acknowledge that to him. Listen, he is eager to forgive and care and comfort you right now by his spirit. Ask him to strengthen your faith, to see him from this divine perspective, to have divine revelation, sharpening your gaze. Oh, Lord, thank you that you, the majestic one, God the Son, should take on this title of man of sorrows. The arm, the power of God himself, the, the Messiah, the King who makes all things new, acquainted with grief for us. Help us now to be assured of your care. Amazed at your love. And help us to bask in your grace, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.